Welcome to Hope Through Hard Stuff, a podcast from Winning at Home. Please welcome your host, speaker, and award-winning author, Steve Norman. Well, welcome back to Hope Through Hard Stuff. I'm just incredibly excited to have as our guest today, Dr. Danielle Trawick. She is the author of a recently released book called The Meaning of Singleness, Retrieving an Eschatological Vision for the Contemporary Church by one of our publishing partners, University Press. Danny, thank you so much for making time today. Thanks for inviting me on. I'm looking forward to our discussion. So Danny, tell me about the backstory for the book. Like, where did this question come from for you personally? Uh, well, I'm single. I've never been married. And so sort of when I was working through my 20s and my 30s, and I still wasn't married, I sort of came to the realization, oh, well, this may not happen, or at least it's not happening on the timetable I expected it to happen. So perhaps I need to do some thinking about what it means to be single as a Christian in, a, in an intentional, careful way, um, not just in terms, you know, what does this mean for me personally, but what does God's word have to say about singleness? What is the significance and, and the meaning and the value of singleness? Uh, so that was, it was a personal, you know, a con personal concern for me, but also I was working in a church, um, serving on a, a church ministry team, mainly amongst women. And a lot of those women were single and not just single like myself who had never been married, but divorced women and widowed women as well. And there was also some single men in the church and just more and more, it was on the agenda for me of how do we as Christians actually think robustly and fully about being unmarried in this life. Uh, but I'd also had a bit of an inkling when I was doing theological study at a seminary myself uh, that, and I explained this in the introduction of the book, so I won't spoil how it comes about, but I, it dawned on me in a way that I'd never heard before that uh, there may be a particular significance of singleness now in this life in light of what we know about the life to come. And so I really wanted to explore that um, and, and spend some time thinking through what that might be, which long story short, turned into a PhD. Um, but I did the PhD in order to write this book. Uh, so the book is getting, you know, completing the PhD was wonderful, but the end goal for me was actually producing a resource that might be helpful um, to embark on new conversations in the church. And that's what uh, my prayer for this book has been. Well, it's I, I will I will join you in that prayer, Danny, because it's it's really challenging for people to write about deeply theological, deeply formative, deeply meaningful work from um, that is academically credentialed, but is also accessible for the layperson. And I, I think you've done that masterfully yeah. in in this book. So thank you for all the blood, sweat, and tears that you put into not just the research, but um, the the tone and the crafting of the words to end up with the resource that you that you did in fact land on. Oh, thank you. That that means an enormous amount to me. I, I didn't want to just produce a book that, you know, five people were going to read and it was full of Hebrew and Greek and, you know, big lots of big words. I wanted to produce something that was actually going to be useful and helpful um, uh, within the church broadly. So I'm, I'm very thankful to hear that. Danny, for people who haven't picked up the book yet, just walk us through, there, there are kind of two themes at the front end of the book that I deeply appreciated. The first one being that, especially in, in the West, again, it's you're, you're Australian, it's not unique to the States apparently, but this understanding that not only are single people, in, again, in certain schools of thought, uh, less than uh, personally, but also might be less than spiritually or less than mm -hmm. theologically. Where where did that come from? Because I was just fascinated to hear you argue that that's a fairly recent phenomenon given the history of the church. Am I reading this right? Yeah, 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 you're right. And I mean, 
in one sense, the question's a massive one. You know, where did this come from? Well, it's come from centuries and centuries and centuries of not just church history, but social history. Uh, and so it's it's a difficult question to answer in one sense, but you're right that, uh, you know, for the first 1500 years of the church, uh, singleness and or what we today call singleness I mean that's even one particular thing the word single is a very contemporary word it's only about 500 years old in total but the way we talk about it uh, singleness is kind of this catch-all it is itself quite a contemporary term throughout history there's been all sorts of other terms and concepts to talk about the unmarried life like virginity like betrothal like widowhood like chastity and continence um We've got the monastic movement. So it's a very complex landscape. But certainly for the first 1,500 years of the church, uh, the unmarried life, in whatever language we want to call that, was highly regarded. And not just highly regarded, but considered to be really essential to the life of the church as a whole. Sometimes in some interesting ways, sometimes in some ways that we would kind of go, oh, I'm not so sure about that. But in deeply theological ways, and really deeply eschatological ways, that is just not part of our sort of living memory as Christians in the present moment. I think our living memory sort of on this topic uh, tends to start at the Reformation uh, and doesn't often go back further than that. Or if we do go back further than that, we're just very suspicious of anything happened before the Reformation. Uh, and so the, some of the theological developments of the Reformation, and I'm a dyed-in-the-wool Protestant, so, you know, I'm all for the Reformation, but some of the developments that came out of that had certain implications about the way we think about singleness, about marriage, about sex, about community, that then kind of wedded with a whole bunch of sociological and cultural and ideological and technological developments that happened over the last 500 years that have kind of got us to the place we're at now where singleness is just seen to be, certainly in the church, um, a tragic situation and, and a state of lacking uh, in that sense. So two of the kind of the leading edges of bleeding edges of the spear of the Reformation were Luther and Calvin. Just in, in a thumbnail, Danny, tell us about where, where they landed on singleness and how that might be problematic for those of us who are trying to thread the needle on this issue today. Yeah. Yeah, and it is very much a thumbnail because, you know, we're talking about copious amounts of work um, sure. by both of them, let alone all the other reformers. But uh, broad thumbnail, uh, the, the Luther, Calvin, other reformers were really seeking to rehabilitate marriage within the Christian community. And that, I think, was an essential thing that they did. They were seeking to push back on uh, corruption within the celibacy of uh, the clergy and the, the monasteries at the time. Again, really important things going on there. But one of the ways in which that sort of worked itself out was by um, particularly it sort of came through their theology of sex. Uh, you know, Luther Luther wrote that um, sex is a biological necessity, essentially, and he wrote as, as necessary as eating, drinking, and going to the toilet, you know. And so when, when you have sex is this kind of human need that you're unable to resist, your options then become, and this is what Luther and Calvin both spoke about, getting married. You, you need to get married in order to be able to legitimately have sex rather than, as Luther would go on to say, commit heinous sin without end. Or if you can't get married, then you need something different, which is some special spiritual empowerment to, 
to to help you refrain from from needing sex to help you live as a a Christian without falling into sexual immorality just because you don't have the opportunity to have sex. Um, That's a very thumbnail sketch, but that's where we see the development of this idea of um, a special spiritual gift of empowerment or what I call a kind of booster shot of the Holy Spirit that God gives to just a a few people to enable them to live an unmarried life uh, in godliness and without being bothered by that and without falling into sexual immorality over and over and over again. It really was a development coming out of Reformation thinking. So Danny, what are, what are the implications of that particular take on singleness? Like if we fast forward, you know, 500 years to where we are now, where are you seeing kind of fruit from those theological seeds as it were? Well, I think one of the fruits is, you know, this, this discussion we have about, well, it's not even a discussion, this kind of assertion we have most of the time about the gift of singleness being, uh, you know, something that's spoken about in scripture really in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 7, Paul doesn't even use the phrase the gift of singleness. He talks about uh, wishing all were unmarried as he was, but that some have one gift and some have another gift. So we've got a couple of gifts on view there. And actually the early church often saw that as being you either have the gift of marriage or the gift of singleness. And by that, they meant you have the gift of being married, just the situation of being married or the situation of being single. And God gives you everything you need in whatever situation he's placed you in. But coming out of the Reformation, through our lens of sort of the romanticization of marriage, that's another big theme that comes out over the last 500 years. Then into our more contemporary time, which is the sexualization of the individual, where my we live in a world where my sexual urges, my sexual instincts and longings are sort of said to be who I am. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if I'm not living those out, expressing those, then I'm suppressing myself. So all of that has gotten us to the point where as Christians, we see romantic intimacy and sexual intimacy in the context of marriage as being kind of necessary for existential fulfillment, necessary for me to be the human person that God's created me to be, the place where I actually am going to find the ultimate source of intimacy uh, in human community, Uh, which means that to be single is to either miss out on all of that and live this kind of tragically unfulfilled life or to be this exceptional individual who's kind of constituted differently um, and has been given some special spiritual transformation so that you're not like everybody else, but you're this rare, exceptional individual um, who who doesn't need all of that because you've got God. And we just end up with this very binary thinking that actually leaves the vast majority of unmarried Christians, whether like me they've never been married or whether they are now single again, in this kind of limbo of, I don't fit into either of those two binary categories. I feel invisible in the church. I feel isolated in the church. I feel not understood. And I just think we have so much need and reason to do better than that. Um, Not only for the sake of those singles themselves, but the sake of who we are as a church, as Mm -hmm. a family of God together. That's that's very very well put, Danny. It's it sounds like if that's the framework that we've inherited, then the only two options for singles are either to be revered as some spiritual oddity or to be pitied as somebody who can just will never will always be less than our version of fully human. Yeah, I think I think that's exactly right. We they're either the hero or they're the victim. Um, mm. 
Yeah. And that that has also implications, you know, for the way we think about marriage as well. We, you know, without sort of going too far into this, but the way the way we think about singleness is very much formed by the way we think about marriage. And I think the way we think about marriage is very much formed by the way we think about singleness. And when you've got, you know, the single person is either the hero or the victim, uh, it actually it stops us from doing the hard work about thinking, well, how do we think about married people as well? The complexity mm. of their life and their situation where there is a mixture of kind of that hero victim reality too. marriage can be really awesome and marriage can be really hard. Uh, and we, we do actually not serving married people well by having this very binary distinction too, I think. Yeah, you do, you do an excellent exploration of, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, Matthew, Matthew 19, where the Pharisees come to Jesus and they're asking him if it was okay for, you know, good Jewish men of that era to pursue, um, you know, divorce on demand. And, and his disciples have this just really baffling response where they say, well, hey, if the bar for marriage is that high, why would anybody get married at all? And then Jesus yeah. talked about how some were born eunuchs, some were made eunuchs, and then some choose to become eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. There's a lot of depth yeah. and richness in that passage that has implications for both singleness and marriage. Can you, can mm. you unpack that for us a little bit? Yeah, I can. Um this passage makes me a little bit nervous, to be honest, because it is a rather obscure passage. I mean, eunuchs. Eunuchs were a, an ancient uh, demographic reality that is just something that feels a bit mythical to us now. What do we make of these eunuchs? You know, Jesus was talking to people who had an understanding of what it was to be a eunuch in a kind of historically located reality. And I, I get a bit concerned that today we kind of take this mythical figure of the eunuch and, and transfer him across to the 21st century and kind of go, there you go, this is the single people of the 21st century. I think we need to do the harder work with what's going on exegetically in that passage, what's going on historically and theolog uh, theologically. But it does seem that Jesus is is you know, the disciples are saying, well, gosh, it is maybe it's better to remain single than to, to get married and, and to sort of not have the option of removing yourself from that situation. And Jesus at that point says, well, actually, here, let me point you to these people who will not marry, the, the eunuchs. Um, and for those who don't know, eunuchs were a, um, mainly they were men, they referred, it was a category of, of a demographic of men in the ancient world who uh, were never going to marry because they were never going to be able to have children. Some of them were, had been castrated. Some of them were born this way. Some of them were made this way by men. They worked typically in the royal households because who was a better person to have guarding the royal bedchamber than the man who can physically protect the women in it, but who's not going to sleep with the women in it right. and end up polluting the royal dynastic line. Um, so they, they were kind of a, a very unique bunch of people. But Jesus sort of appropriates the eunuch here to talk about, well, there are people who look at these people who don't get married, but he uses it in a kind of illustrative way. We today in our discussions about singleness tend to jump straight to the third eunuch, the eunuch who has made himself a, king, a, a, a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. Um, and I think that's because we live in a day and age where choice and our will to act is highly prized. We're very good at talking about what we choose, what we are willing to accept, rather than you know, sort of existing in this gray area of what we've been given. But Jesus mm. doesn't just talk about the third type of eunuch there, that, you know, if we're going to make a direct equivalence to singleness, the single person who's chosen to be single, 
he talks about three types of eunuchs and the first two eunuchs are those who actually have had no choice in the matter. They were either born this way or they were made that way by men. Um, and so there's a sense in which their eunuchdom is circumstantial in that point, in that sense. And so I think if we look at these three eunuchs and, and work hard at what Jesus is actually saying here, we can actually see there's quite a spectrum of the unmarried life on view rather than just the chosen eunuch, the one who's embarked on this. But I will say, um, and I, this is something I'd like to do a bit more work on and I haven't had the chance to yet, there are some interesting um, there is some interesting work that's been done that actually uh, suggests that we have misunderstand understood that passage altogether. <laughs> um, I do mention this in my book and give some references, but there's um, there's a scholar. Oh, I'm going to forget his name. I think his name is Heth H E T H, who's written sort of a thesis on this, and he's got he's got a very interesting exegetical argument that would suggest that we need to do far more work on this passage than we've we've done so far. Um, so just putting that in as a caveat there, because I do think there is some ambiguity about how we how do we interpret this passage. Yeah, no, that's so good. Recently, I, I was coming across Acts chapter eight again, where we hear about the Ethiopian eunuch. And one of the, and again, I would love your input here, but one of the things I find fascinating about that particular biblical account, Danny, is that when Philip approaches the chariot where the eunuch is reading, he's reading from the passage of Isaiah. And he's trying to figure out, you know, who, who this messianic figure is, and, and he needs Philip's help understanding that. But then just within 30 verses, there is a reference, Isaiah makes reference to the eunuch, who yeah. keep the Sabbath and who keep God's commands, and that, that the Lord is going to give that eunuch a memorial greater than sons and daughters. And I just mm. I love that idea that, that within that culture, especially within Hebrew culture, where name and lineage and and descendants and male descendants and carrying on the tribe and the land and the territory were all so critical to to one's identity for the for the eunuch to be able to say that's not anything that I'll ever have and for God not in a way that is glib or flippant to be able to say as you trust me I will give you that and more am I am I yeah correctly? absolutely yeah absolutely I mean that's a promise you see these little glimpses in the Old Testament as as you said being a eunuch, being a barren woman um, within the Israelite context was a tragedy because it was all about God was building his people through the biological descendants of Abraham. That has how God's covenant of the Old Testament was actually being worked out in human history. And so to not, to be a man or a woman, a eunuch or a barren woman who was not participating actively in that kind of covenantal fulfillment was seen to be a tragedy and eunuchs were excluded from the temple. You know, they were considered mm -hmm. unclean. Right. Uh, they, they lived a very marginal existence. Uh, but then we get a passage like Isaiah where, you know, to the eunuchs, I will give a name better than sons and daughters. Um, we see the vision of the barren woman um, being transformed from a tragedy into, into a, a beautiful thing. And that is the promise of um, the gospel, that actually in the gospel, uh, we are not born into a biologically descended belonging to God and his people. We're actually adopted in through spiritual rebirth. Uh, and that means that the eunuch, whether it's a eunuch who has been born that way or made that way by man or has made themselves a eunuch, has as much a part an inheritance and, in fact, even perhaps a greater inheritance from Isaiah um, than the person who, um, you know, is your, your standard 
married person with the 2.5 kids. And I, I, you know, I, I think we see that reflected. I'm going to I'm not, I can't remember the exact passage in the gospel, but where Jesus talks about those who are willing to leave behind, you know, mm-hmm. mother mm-hmm. and brother and sister and homes and fields um, will receive not just in the next life, but in this life, so much more than that. That's the promise of the gospel, that there's so much more than just the good things that we have through marriage and family in this life. And again, I think that's a perspective that unfortunately is all too often lost in our current cultural context, Danny. I think that there are a lot of people, and again, they're they're well-intentioned, but they just don't have the the spiritual or theological imagination to conceive of any state of existence where a a rich, deep sense of belonging and a true and and valued and God-honoring intimacy would take a form any other than marital, physical intimacy. Why are we sometimes stuck with such a small and narrow view of those categories, Danny? Oh, that is a good question. I think a lot of it has to do with sort of, you know, how we have historically developed to our thinking, particularly over the last 500 years. But just to dive in on one particular aspect a bit more deeply, I think it is, and this is a a distinction between us now and many in the early, certainly the early church and some of the medieval church, We are so comfortable in this world here and now, particularly in the West. We're so comfortable with life as we know it in this creation. Um, You know, I think we have lost a vision of this is not our home. Uh, This is a good place. This world is still, you know, God's good world. It's marred by sin. We are marred by sin. But the creation around us, our existence in this creation is a good thing. But it's not the ultimate thing. And so the picture we get, of the new creation is exactly what you were just talking about there. It's an eternity where we will be our most fully perfected selves. We will be the most fully human that we could possibly be. We will know perfectly. We will be perfectly known. We will be standing in the very presence of God. There will be no more crying or pain or mourning or tears for the old order has passed away. And in that place, Christ is going to be married to his church, us all together corporately. But Jesus says in Matthew chapter 22, none of us are going to be married to each other. None of us are going to be husbands and wives with each other. Instead, we're going to enjoy this perfectly knowing intimacy as sons and daughters of God, as brothers and sisters to each other. And that is actually going to be the most perfect sense of community that we are, could, it's beyond our imagination to even understand what that might be. That's the future that we know is coming for us. We're not there yet, but also it's not like that's just this distant way off reality that has no impact on life here and now. You know, the Bible says that we're already citizens of heaven. We've already been raised with Christ. We're living in this awkward now, but not yet between Jesus' first coming and his second coming. And so what's to come ought to impact the way we live life here and now. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that actually, if, if we're willing to work hard at, thinking how do we do that, that will greatly amplify the beauty of marriage because it will remind us that as good as marriage is on this earth, it's actually pointing to something more ultimate than itself. And so it exists to serve that more ultimate thing. But it will also amplify the beauty of being unmarried now because it will help us to see that the existence of being unmarried now is just a little and imperfect but a little foretaste of what's to come about being unmarried Uh, as individuals for eternity and so I think if we could be less 
If we could emulate some of our earlier ancestors by realizing this world is not our home, it's not our ultimate destination, it's not where we find our ultimate joy, um, even as good as it is, I suspect that we would really be forced to grapple with a whole bunch of things, singleness and marriage included. That's, that's very, very well put. Thank you. Danny, even as you were kind of following that thread, I was calling to mind C.S. Lewis's, you know, parable of the great divorce of a group of people who had an opportunity to, to step into eternity and realize that they were less comfortable in the eschatological vision that God had for them than they were in their kind of current temporal yeah. set of circumstances. And, the, you know, the great irony of the story is that there were a couple of people who took this field trip to heaven who really opted to, to not stay, to come back, yeah. because what, what they could see and what they could control and what they could hold uh, was infinitely more comfortable to them than what was what was beautiful and what was rich and what was true. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a real challenge, isn't it? And I, I, you know, I've never been married, but most of my friends, I mean, my, my parents have been married for 50 years. So I've seen marriage up close and personal. I've seen the beauty of it. I've seen the the wonder of the relationship between a husband and wife, as well as the complexities of that too. And I completely understand why it would be it would be challenging and uncomfortable and perhaps sad for a husband and wife to think, well, hang on a second this has an expiry date. Death is going to end this. This is not going to continue beyond, certainly not into eternity, but in fact, when one of us dies, this ends. I right. can appreciate the grief that that would bring and, and the discomfort that that would bring. But I think what we have to keep remembering is that, you know, if he, I was at a, a church event on the weekend and um, someone was preaching on Ephesians chapter three, where God is able to do abundantly more than we can ask or imagine. Mm -hmm. Eternity is going to be abundantly more than our little weak, meager imaginations can understand of what is good. Uh, and so if we, if we believe that to be true, then I think we're compelled to recognize that the goodness of marriage now is good, is important, is significant. But what's coming is going to be even better. And that actually should make us appreciate marriage even more now as a taste of a good thing as we wait for the better things to come. Yeah, that's that's great. Danny, I, I grew up Pentecostal and am deeply appreciative for some of the uh, eschatological or this kind of for people who aren't familiar with that term. It's a, it's a study of the end times or a belief of the things still to come. And there was there was just this rich sense that Jesus could return at any moment. Unfortunately, when that was carried to its extreme, uh, it turned into like a form of escapism. So, Danny, what does it mean for people to have a rich vision for what is coming and still be fully present and engaged uh, until that moment comes. Yeah, that's the tension, isn't it? Because as I said before, we're not living in eternity yet. We, the Bible actually says, you know, this isn't just this distant fire off reality that you don't have to think about now. Um, it does say that it, it has been, you know, inaugurated by Jesus' resurrection. It's given us glimpses of what that's going to be like. Um, the eternity has broken into the present, but we aren't yet in the new creation. We're still in this creation. I'm still existing in my body that exists in this world rather than the awesome resurrection body I'm going to have in the next. And, you know, that means I grapple with the realities of my bodily existence in this world. And I grapple with the realities of my sinful existence in this world too, while holding on to the hope of a world to come where that won't be the reality and asking God to be working in me here and now to, to live in light of that world to come. But you're right, we, we don't want to, we need to walk that fine line between this world being everything 
and the next world being everything that mm. actually where it is in my in my book I talk about it as this awkward meanwhile it is awkward um it is it is complex uh but it does mean that we we don't just treat life here and now as negligible as not important what we do with our bodies doesn't matter here that's not the case what we do with our relationships doesn't really matter here because we're living in light of eternity no 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 we're living in light of eternity in what we're how we're living here mm, yeah. um you know and i think that that can lead to if we if we go into this escapism too much of, of the eschatological reality it's to come that can lead to into kind of a Gnostic way of thinking where we separate the body and the spirit. We separate, you know, the, the physicality of this world as being dirty and, and useless and something we can cast off because it's all just about, you know, the spirit. And that's actually not a reflection of the world to come either because the world to come is an embodied, real physical world where we will have bodies that are fully integrated with who we are as a soul, as a person. So I'm not sure if I've answered your question beyond just, yeah, it's really hard, uh, but I think it's also exciting. I think to dwell on that, to think about, well, how how can I live now in light of eternity? I think that's kind of exciting to, to work through. It's truly helpful. Danny, what, what do you say to churches who historically have been very nuclear family centric? Uh, all of the All of the ministries, all the programs, all the groups are wired around husbands and wives or couples with kids. What, what does it look like? for a church that has historically been framed that way to honor, elevate, and, and, and truly embrace singles within their midst? Mm. Well, the first thing I think I'd say is that church hasn't always been centered around the nuclear family as we understand it today, because the nuclear family as a kind of sociological development is this, and by, by that I mean the kind of isolated secluded little family household unit of the parents and the 2.5 children and the dog behind the white picket fence or whatever that looks like in the 21st century west that has not we think that's always been the way that humans have done family it's actually it's not the case at all I, I recently presented a paper where I looked at 2000 years of kind of household history and certainly marriage and children were fundamental to the household but the household itself was not this little isolated secluded unit that kind of just ventured out into the world at its own leisure and then retreated behind that white picket fence. So that's household. a relatively recent phenomenon. It is. Essentially, it's a vision of the 1950s uh, that we was a remarkably brief golden decade that we tend to think of the, as the Christian way of mm. doing family. Actually, Christians throughout the, the centuries have done families in all sorts of different ways that has reflected extended household units, has reflected the place of the family in society and in the church. You know, I think we think of the church, whether we're willing to admit this or not, I think underneath, if we scratch beneath the surface, I think we contemporary uh, Christians tend to think of the church as kind of an association of families. It's where the families come together or race, where household units come together. And you might have some single household units, but really it's about, you know, the, the families coming and, and doing this thing together rather than thinking about ourselves as one family, uh, where actually husband and wife in the church are primarily eternally brother and sister that's the fundamental relationship that's going on between a husband and wife enduringly within the context of the church uh, and just as you are 
brother to your wife in the church, you're also my brother. I'm your sister. And if we, that's not to negate the specific, unique, exclusive reality of the marriage relationship in itself, but it is to say that as the church, the the fundamental relationship that exists between us is as sons and daughters of God, is as brothers and sisters in Christ. And in that sense, that's a very, I don't mean this in a negative way, it's a very leveling kind of reality at that point not just gathering, but and but living as the church together and the way we relate and think about each other. We ought not by primarily be thinking about each other as husbands and wives, as family units, but as one whole church together. Now, if we were to do that, if we were to work on that, I think we'd see all sorts of implications pastorally flowing out from that about what ministries we run at church, uh, what, what we speak about from the front of church, what we celebrate in people's lives at church. Another sort of a a side point to this to your question is we are living in a world where there are less and less marriages happening uh, where there are more and well actually the divorce rate is kind of stabilized but it's stabilized at quite a high rate Uh, you know there are a lot of marriages that are not continuing that are failing there are a lot more single parents I think if we are going to be effective witnesses to the gospel if we are going to you know fulfill Jesus command to go and make disciples of all nations we need to understand the people who are in our communities around us we need to not assume that the majority of them um, or at least the overwhelming majority of them are nuclear family units Mm -hmm. I want to encourage those in pastoral ministry at church to have a look around and just take stock of Who's sitting in your church seats on a Sunday morning? Does that match up with who you think is sitting in your seats? Look at the the census data of the communities around you. Does that match up with the the data of who you think you're seeking to reach with the gospel? And how does understanding the reality of people's lives, regardless of what you think about those realities, how does understanding where people are at help you to think about what does it mean to evangelize and disciple them where they're at? Mm -hmm to see them grow to maturity in Christ where they're at. That's great. Danny, what do you say to people who are single and are still feeling a little bit of a soul ache who might not have come to appreciate kind of, kind of the beauty and the, and the richness and the depth that you're talking about? What, what, do you, what do you say to people who are in that spot? Well, I say to them, I'm with you. I, I'm, you know, I'm one of you. I had anticipated being married. Uh, it hasn't happened. I, you know, I'm sort of living with that hand open to God saying this, I know that this is a good thing. You haven't given it to me yet, but my hand's open here, God. If you want to give it to me, here it is. While at the same time, and grieving that he has not yet given to me. I mean, marriage is a good gift from God. It is a joy. It is a blessing. And so there's a rightness to grieve, you know, the loss of something you've never had. I run a ministry called Single Minded and we've got a a seminar coming up in a couple of weeks time called Grieving What Isn't, because I actually think it's important to grieve this disenfranchised grief of not having experienced this thing that you know is really good and that your soul does ache for in some ways. And so the first thing I want to say is it's legitimate to feel that way. Where we have to be careful as singles is not to be allow ourselves to kind of just dwell in the grief endlessly, to kind of find comfort in the morning, to feel content in the discontentment. Uh, Our goal is to actually learn the secret of contentment, as um, the Apostle Paul speaks about, um, being content in whatever circumstances God gives us, because he has given us all we need in Christ 
through his spirit. That doesn't mean that there won't be seasons of life. There won't be days or hours or months or years that are harder um, than others. It doesn't mean that the single life, just as a married life, is always going to be easy. That's just not the way life works in this world. Uh, But I want to encourage, I have been enormously personally encouraged by doing this work because it has helped me to understand that God's vision for my singleness is far grander than my own could ever have been. Mm. And so I want to encourage those who are single and also those who are married to try and dwell, try and explore what, well, hang on, I know how I feel about my singleness, but what does God say about my singleness? What purposes does God give to my singleness? What meaning and dignity does he imbue in it? And then pray that he will align your vision with his. Um, I think that's the way forward because uh, if we can see how good God sees our singleness is, that will transform the way we live out our singleness in this world. Imperfectly while we're waiting for the next world, but still a very, very worthwhile pursuit. And just last question here. What practical words of advice do you have to parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, siblings of people who are single to help uh, help them in that pursuit of God's vision for their singleness rather than try to like accelerate them beyond the season that they're in and yeah. attempts to want to be helpful, but maybe not really being helpful at all. Yeah. I think the first thing I want to encourage people to do, and this is both singles and the married people in their life, is to actually be honest and, and vulnerable with each other. You don't, if you're married, don't assume you know how your single friend is feeling or family member is feeling about their singleness. Actually ask them. Respect boundaries. Do this appropriately, but in, create an environment, a relational environment, where they feel they're able to be vulnerable and honest with you about how they're feeling. Because you might be surprised. Uh, you might have assumed things about how they're feeling that they're not feeling, certainly in that moment at all. So don't make assumptions. Don't assume that, you know, they want to be married uh, at all costs because that's unlikely to be the case as well because, frankly, if they did want to be married at all costs, they could probably make that happen. So honour the fact that actually they're living, they're making decisions that are godly and right decisions of Christian obedience that actually is contributing towards the fact that they are remaining single even as that may not be their desire. So a lot of single Christians could solve their quote-unquote singleness problem by going and marrying a non-Christian tomorrow. Um, They could go and solve their longing for romantic and sexual intimacy by going and finding someone who doesn't love Jesus Christ to give that to them. But the vast majority of us are not doing that. We're actually honouring Jesus through living in our singleness despite possible alternatives that might be available to us. And so I think what I'm saying there is just, you know, Expand your vision of what's going on in their lives and recognize how God might be working in their lives in ways that you don't appreciate for their godliness, but also invite them into your life. So if um, if you're not watching a video, but uh, behind me, there's a there's a, paint, a picture on the wall that I was given for Mother's Day this year. I'm not a mother. I don't have children, but my niece and nephew gave me this picture, which is just an illustration of our hands, kind of our fists pumping. I do fist pumps with them all the time. So I've got a picture of me with my fist pumping theirs. And the the, the image says, they call me DD. That's their name for me. Um, the best team to be on is DD's team. I broke down in tears when I got that because that was Mother's Day. 
you know, a day that is not traditionally a day that I celebrate anything. <laughs> um, but my niece and nephew consider my motherly influence in their life so significant. And their mother thinks it's so significant that this is the gift that they gave me on that day. Um, and I love being an aunt. I love investing in my God kids' lives. I love investing in the families of those in my church, in my community. But also, I love being invited to do that. I love initiating it, but I love being invited to be part of that too. And so let's just do community together. Let's open our lives and our relationships to each other in a way that does take courage and does make us vulnerable to each other, but actually does give a little bit of a foretaste of the eternity that's to come when we'll know each other perfectly. And it won't matter if we're, you know, we were husband and wife in the previous age or not, um, because we'll be brother and sister for eternity. It's a powerful note to end on. Uh, again, the book is called The Meaning of Singleness, Retrieving an Eschatological Vision for the Contemporary Church. We've been talking today with Danny Treweek. Danny, where can people find out more about your work in ministry? Uh, you can go to my website, danieltreweek.com. Um, I've got a, a sub stack there where I write regularly on all sorts of things related and unrelated to singleness. You can check out single-minded, or one word, single-minded.community. That's a ministry, resourcing ministry I direct. Uh, and you can follow me on Twitter at uh, Danny Treweek. Yeah, that's probably the, the key places to go. Awesome. Well, thanks again for your incredible work and thank you for your time today. I hope uh, at a future date we can continue the conversation. Be lovely. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Hope Through the Hard Stuff. If you liked what you heard, please remember to subscribe to it, rate and review it, and then share it with others. Winning at Home offers hope through counseling and coaching, motivational speaking, community events, and other media resources. If you believe in what we do and want to support us in our mission, consider making a donation at winningathome.com.